Do you have that clip? I do. Okay. I, before we start, I found a clip that I want to share. It's probably, um, it's such a spiritually moving clip that really focuses on the gift of teaching, kind of brings that home. So I want you all to watch this. All right, now, Steve, there's four subjects we're going to cover. That's right. You listen carefully, and I'll get you the answer. Okay. Now, we're going to start with geography. That's right. Now, here, here is a map of the United States. That's right. Now, the United States is bounded on the north by Canada, on the south by Mexico, on the east by the Atlantic Ocean, and on the west by, uh, with the, did you happen to know that? Yeah. Old man Kelsey's woods. <laughs> All the way back. Big body of water. <clears throat> Old man Kelsey's creek. <laughs> ocean. Old man Kelsey's ocean. Pacific Ocean. Pacific Ocean. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I turn on my boundaries good, don't I? Sure do. Just as long as they don't change it before I take my test. <laughs> When we were talking about who was doing what today, and we decided I was going to t do the teaching part. That's the first thing I thought of. Yeah, I love that show. Uh, it's, it's like the best comedy of all time to me. Um, and I really tried to think of a spiritual application <laughs> from it. And all I could come up with was um, Andy kind of met Ernest T. where he was. You know, he didn't expect more or less from him. So anyway, there you go. That's the spiritual application. But... Um, who scored high on teaching? Of course. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, as a reminder to us, we're about halfway through the semester, and I'm really having trouble hearing. My ears are clogged up, so I sound funny. So if I talk loud, I'm sorry. If I don't talk loud enough, I'm sorry. But it's such a weird sound. But anyway. Um, I just wanted to remind us of the context of this class. Um, these gifts are from the Holy Spirit, um, and we're supposed to use them to build up the body. And I found this excerpt from a sermon on spiritual gifts that I thought kind of refocused us on why we're here. It says, um, <clears throat> I want you to be willing to do the hard work, to do the research, to look inside your soul, to jump in the water of ministry, to do whatever it takes to discover how God wired you because you are his workmanship. You have been created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. What good works? The works that he preordained. You are a paintbrush using your gift, painting the spirit of God's work through the word of God in community to change lives. And you need, and you need to know what kind of paintbrush you are. So I thought that was a beautiful picture of why we're here. We're here to discover our gifts and to use them to edify and build up the body. So let's start with um, the definition. The definition that was given in our materials, I didn't love, kind of like you didn't love the faith definition. So um, I did a little, little research and came up with this one. The spirit given capacity and desire to serve God by making clear the truths of God's word with accuracy and simplicity. Um, I want you to think about some of the best teachers you've had. And I'm, I'm really talking more in the context of biblical teaching like a teacher um, on Sunday morning or a preacher, um, and what made them great. But I want to look at some characteristics I came up with first, and then um, as you're thinking about that, we'll share 
share those attributes. Their basic drive is to discover and validate truth, hunger, they hunger and crave discovering new truths. Um, discover and, did I read that right? Discover and validate truths. They hunger and crave discovering new truths. They want context, nuance, definition, and original language. They have an insatiable desire to learn the word of God at a deeper level. In other words, they're not content with milk. They want the meat of the word. Uh, that, and in turn, that's going to help equip believers to handle more complex matters of scripture. And they're motivated to share the word effectively. So, what made your teachers great? The ones that impacted you the most? <clears throat> what did they, how did they teach to connect with you? I had a teacher in first grade in Sunday school, Jillian Scrooge. That's uh, funny how you still remember her name. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I also had a teacher in fourth or fifth grade named Roger Crozier, who was impressive because he was a man, which right, didn't right. know what right. And he was probably 6'6 six, six or something. And so as a fourth grader, you know, he's a giant. <laughs> and Roger would come in every day and start with the geography, kind of funny, like Andy. Yeah. Of, of Israel. So he would draw the Mediterranean Sea, which looks like that, um, and then we would talk about Israel and things like that. Um, but in first grade, Joanne Scruggs, um, you know, here we are, six or seven-year-olds, squirrely, and everything you ever read about how to teach six and seven-year-olds, seven-year-olds, <coughs> a craft or a game or something like and we would come in, and she would open her Bible and say, let's see where those Israelites are today. And she would start reading the Bible. <laughs> it was just like story time. So anyway, I think what made that effective was just her passion was kind of contagious. And so as six and seven year olds, we were, you know, it was like an Old Testament history class. And it was interesting yeah. because it was like story time. She made it come alive. Yeah. So, yeah. Like I wonder what I'd want to be in her class now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. She was a great teacher. Anybody else have a memorable teacher? I think we're very gifted here with a lot of teachers. Um, I think of Randall Wilcher's class. I mean, I just I sit there. I'm just in awe of his knowledge and how he can impart that to people. Um, and for me, um, my children would tell you, I tend to take everyday stories and probably, <laughs> I don't know, I like to make spiritual applications out of everyday things. Sometimes it's a stretch, but um, when we talk about hospitality, I'll share a something I shared with our youth group as far as everyday stories having a spiritual application but all right let's look at some scriptures then first one is Ephesians 411 we might have read this one before but um, it says it was he who gave some to be apostles some to be prophets some to be evangelists some to be pastors and teachers why to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God who became mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then James 3.1, <clears throat> that chapter I've always known is the chapter on the tongue, but that first, that first verse really convicted me, um, talking about how um, teachers will be judged more strictly, um, will be held more accountable for what we say, and then if somebody can turn to Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 3 and read that. I don't know that I had ever really noticed this passage, passage before, but 
Um, this is Moses talking to the Israelites, and he's just told them he knows they're going to rebel again and again and again. And so these are some words that, that he leaves with them. And I think this may be right before he dies, or not immediately, but um, he dies soon after. So does someone have that? It says, listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew. Like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on the tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. O praise the greatness of our God. I just thought that was so beautiful, and what, what came to my mind was um, sitting in a class of a gifted teacher and them just revealing a new truth and just like that aha. It's like, I've never thought of it that way before. You know, just some, learning something new and how refreshing that is, and I think that's, that's how he describes his, this teaching here. Um, showers on new grass, abundant rain on tender plants, just a refreshing um, truth. Um, I have another quote that I think just kind of wraps up uh, that's gift on teaching. And it says, one of the greatest contributions spiritual teachers make to the body of Christ is leading people into maturity, building people up in their faith, and enabling <coughs> them to grow in wisdom and knowledge. And when I read that, it reminded me of just how all these gifts are so intertwined. Um, when I talked about intercession, um, I talked about letting people know you're praying for them and how encouraging that is. And then I talked about encouragement and how it, it builds our faith up when we encourage. And then Eric talked about faith. So it's just all working together. You know, all these gifts are working together. And, and I think that also summarizes the Ephesians verse. But um, I had one more thing that I read that I wasn't sure if I agreed with or not. So I want to see what you all think about this. Someone described people with the gift of teaching like this. So someone with the spiritual gift of teaching views Bible study as an academic activity with a spiritual benefit rather than a spiritual activity with an academic benefit. What do y'all think about that? I mean, I understand where they're coming from. If, if these characteristics we talked about describe these teachers, you know, they're hungry and thirsting for more truths and meat. So they may approach it in an academic way, but for the spiritual benefit of others. I prefer to think of it as um, an, a spiritual activity with a spiritual benefit. But I just thought that was interesting how they approached it that way. You had a couple of things you wanted to share, yeah. right? Just a quick example, I, if you guys would turn your Bibles to John chapter 18, <coughs> something that I enjoy doing when I, when I study, I, I teach communication classes and, and I'm always interested in seeing things that maybe I didn't know were there before. And I kind of ask myself a question, was that always there in my Bible, was that really there? So John chapter 18, uh, in verse uh, 17, then a slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of these men's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Okay, it's a little interesting thought, okay? There's one other place in the Bible, one other place in the New Testament that the uh, New American Standard Version translates it charcoal fire. So let's fast forward now. 
to chapter 21. Some of you know where I'm going with this. And, and you know, it's kind of, it's kind of fun as, as we uh, study the Bible to compare some things. Chapter 21, you know Jesus uh, has already risen, and the disciples at one point, Peter says in verse 3, I'm going fishing. So a bunch of them decide to go fishing. And so they fish all night, and they caught nothing. And uh, verse 5, children, have you caught any fish? No. And uh, Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. And they got a great number of fish. Verse 7, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. He put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and they threw and threw himself into the sea. Now just a second here. Let's stop here. Here's an interesting question. If you're in the boat and you realize Jesus is on the shore, and you want to get to the shore quicker than the boat is, you're down to your boxer shorts and your t-shirt. You're working. Okay. What effect would throwing on your outer garment have? on you swimming from the boat to the shore. It slowed slow me down. I mean, it's, it's, it dragged me down. It slowed me down. I can't win an argument with you on this. I don't know about this. But I wonder, when he thought, it that's the Lord, you suppose Peter thought he was going to get out of the water and do something he had done one other time? So anyway, they get to the shore, and they bring in all the fish, Jesus says, uh, let's see, uh, look at verse uh, 8. The other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus is on the shore. He already had some fish. He was making some fish. But this translation, not all translations say charcoal, some say coal, but this translation says charcoal fire. And I wonder if Peter ever looked at a charcoal fire the very same way. One day it's warming him, and he is, uh, his heart is divided, as we heard about first hour, and you'll hear about second hour again, but his heart is divided. <coughs> It's interesting, it says charcoal fire. It makes me have to ask the question, did Peter ever hear a rooster crow the very same way? Um, that's, that's something that I enjoy doing as a teacher, but I will add that there's a challenge to that. There's a, uh, we may get so involved in the knowledge and we know that knowledge can puff up, and that's not our purpose, is it? <clears throat> but uh, I think asking questions like, what did they feel, what did they think, what did they, what did they see, what were the other people feeling around them, what were the emotional feelings they had, what were their psychological moods, what were their physical context, asking those kind of questions, and then posing those to a class like you folks who know your Bible, uh, I just think it's kind of a neat thought that I wonder if he ever thought about charcoal the very same way or, or rooster the same way. Yeah. Little example. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Kim. All right, well, <clears throat> as Deanna said, how these gifts tend to go together, and as Kent is talking about, um, you know, knowledge can serve to puff up, but, um, but there is value in knowledge too. So the next two gifts we're, we're going to look at are uh, evangelism and knowledge, which 
obviously go with teaching a little bit. So, um, first, evangelism. Um, the definition here is that the evangelism is the God-given ability to effectively communicate the gospel of non-believers. That should be to non-believers. Communicate the gospel to non-believers so they respond in faith and move toward discipleship. The gospel of non-believers is something else entirely. <laughs> okay. The God-given ability to effectively communicate the gospel to non-believers so they respond in faith and move toward discipleship. Okay, this is evangelism. Um, so I, I've got a little video clip also. Um, not quite on the moral high ground of Andy Griffith. But we're going to look at this. But before we do that, um, I just want to hear from you guys. Have you ever... Uh, been in any kind of evangelism ministry? What, what, what was that experience like? Did you enjoy it or not? So if you think about some of the classic kind of evangelism ministries, so that might be like a bus ministry where you're bringing kids to church, maybe a door knocking campaign. I saw an interview um, online as I was kind of studying, and uh, this guy lives in an intentional missional community with other people, so he's trying to share the good news of Christ. And the interviewer says, oh, so you're an evangelist. What kind of door hangers do you use? And the guy kind of laughs. Like, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. But, but have any of you had experiences like that with classic kind of evangelistic stuff? You know, the cold call stuff is really hard for me. Maybe others it's easier. Uh, the warm, warm calls are a whole lot. Better. Somebody that I already have a relationship with, I have right. an easier time bringing them Yeah, Yeah, relational. Anybody else ever been a, anybody ever done like a door knocking campaign, hanging the, yeah, you, out yeah, pass out flyers, did you enjoy the door knocking campaign? Hoping no one comes to the door, yeah, yeah, <laughs> knock, 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 oh, there's no here, <laughs> yeah, I've only ever done that, I've never done that in the States, I did do that on a mission trip in Brazil one time where we knocked doors, actually there you don't knock on doors, you call, you stand outside by the sidewalk and you clap, that's how you knock on the door in Brazil. So we walked down the street clapping and see who came out and then talked. Okay. All right, so here's a little video clip about how we, this is how we typically think about evangelism from the classic movie Airplane. Excuse me, would you like to have this tower? Excuse me, sir, would you like to have this tower? Donation to the Reverend Moon? Read about Jehovah's Witness? How about Buddhism? All right, so that's kind of how you feel. Like, and we probably all have had the experience of people coming to the door, right? Whether Mormons, two guys on, a, on bicycles, or maybe Jehovah's Witnesses, things like that. They come to the door, and you don't want to be a jerk, right? You don't want to be like, yeah, I already gave the office, or I'm already a Jesus follower, and you slam the door in their face, because that um, doesn't make sense with being a Jesus follower, that you would be rude to someone. But... Um, We've, we've been on that side of it, right? Where you feel like you're being accosted by people wanting to hand you a tract or something, and that's not beneficial. And of course, you could just punch them out and go on your way. But it's probably not the best way to respond. Okay, so I'd like to focus on uh, what Kent mentioned as far as that relational aspect, and then also um, kind of the content of what we're communicating. So um, again, that's gospel to non-believers. But the word gospel, the good news that we're trying to communicate to people, 
Um, actually, in the New Testament context, that word gospel uh, also meant good news, but it typically had um, a connotation of good news about a political movement. So it was good news from the battlefront. You know, the messenger comes back from the battlefront with the good news of victory. And so he says, good news, we have, we have won the battle, and our empire will, will grow or will continue or whatever. So either in that context or the good news of a new political reign that was, that was coming along. So good news, you know, the bad Caesar is dead. Good news, this new Caesar is on throne. Long live Caesar, hail Caesar, that kind of stuff. So, so that's the good news. Political reign, uh, empire regime change, or that a battle has been won. And so if you kind of put that into our context, that's the good news that we have to share, right? That there is an, a regime change. There is a new reigning kingdom that is coming. And all, we are, all, all we're doing is being the messenger, that there, there's a new alternative, good way to live. Um, this is good news. And so I, I want to share that with you. Uh, this is a quote that's usually attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. We didn't have recorded at the time, so we're not totally sure. But you probably heard this in some form. Preach the gospel, the good news. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. And so for those of us like Bradley or like me, I am really averse to going and knocking on someone's door. Like, I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Um, but I do think I can live in such a way that helps people see the good news of the coming kingdom. I can, I can construct my life so that I'm kind of presenting hope and, and reflecting the good ways of Jesus. And then from that, hopefully conversations spring forth and questions can be, can be asked. And, and but it's like we live in Tulsa, Terry Rush, <clears throat> yeah. series called yeah. 100% Natural. Uh-huh. And it was an evangelism series. And it was to be yourself and to not beat them over the head with the Bible or whatever. It was just make contact walk alongside and go from there. You know, then you're baking. Maybe you don't need sugar, but go next door and borrow a cup of sugar so that you can start mm -hmm. some kind of conversation. Just be natural about what you do. Don't yeah. <clears throat> you'll be intentional, but but still don't be yeah, over, overbearing. Overbearing. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I'm not, this is not, evangelism is not a sales strategy, right? So we don't, we don't have sales meetings and marketing strategies and figure out what tracks work or door hangers work. Evangelism is not a strategy. It's a way of, of living so that you're inviting others into the, the good news story, the gospel story. So, and that doesn't even always require words. Sometimes it's just a way of, of living, so. Um, okay, a couple of texts for us to look at here. And um, we don't have time to read all of the, that probably, but um, Acts chapter 8. Um, this is the story of, of Philip and the Ethiopian. And so um, you're probably familiar with this story. I'm not gonna, going to read it all for the sake of time. But, um, you know, Philip and the Ethiopian are riding in the chariot. The Ethiopian is trying to study uh, the Bible. I think he has the text Isaiah. Is that right? Yeah, he's reading the book of Isaiah. 
and doesn't quite grasp everything. And so Philip kind of helps him process that. And then they come upon a body of water. And the Ethiopian says, well, look, there's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip says, let's do it. And so they get out, and he baptizes them. So um, I think, uh, again, that's not something that's in the, in the flow of a natural activity. They're traveling together. They have this conversation swell up. And then action comes out of that, but it's not—it's um, not a sales pitch. It's not something that uh, Philip's trying to beat him over the head with. Uh, it's just something that naturally occurs in the conversation. So I, I think that's a good example. Um, and then the other example is John three one through seventeen, and of course we're familiar with the last couple of verses of John chapter, or you know, John three sixteen and seventeen are well known verses. <clears throat> but we don't always have the full context there. By the way, you see the same thing in John chapter 4 when Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman. You know, they're at this, they're at a well together, um, which has um, uh, liter- in, in the <coughs> literary um, analysis has certain meanings. Because anytime in the Old Testament when you have a male and a female gathered at a well, there's some sort of sexual tension or a marriage comes out of that, or there, some, something significant happens between a male and a female at a will. Here, yeah, in John chapter 4, we haven't gotten there yet. John chapter 4, uh, Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman, and um, they kind of have this deep conversation. And it, But it's again, it's in the course of the natural uh, gathering place of the well, and um, Jesus is sharing the good news of the kingdom with her. But before that, sorry, that was just a free bonus. Uh, before that, John chapter 3. Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Um, So let me read these verses real quick. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if, if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, can a man be born when he is not old? Surely he cannot enter a second time to his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. And the, the conversation continues like that. And I think the beauty of this conversation, as Jesus always does, is he doesn't ever say, here's the formula. Here's what you have to do um, to, to be a, a follower of me. I guess one time he says, you know, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. But um, generally, Jesus is kind of giving um, mysterious words. The kingdom of God is like... A seed, or the kingdom of God is like this. But he never says, what's, what is the kingdom of God? You can't ever nail him down. And I think the reason he takes that approach is because he wants to engage the person he's talking to to get their wheels turning. So he's asking questions. He's giving open-ended statements. He's creating a, a conversation where they can think, where they can process some things, where they can try to see the world in a different light. And that doesn't happen you know, on a tract, on a piece of paper or a DVD that you hand out or anything like that. So, so I think the, and then we'll, we'll skip on down here to um, uh, 
verse 16 and 17, which this is, is of course, the good news that he's, that he's giving uh, to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So that is the nugget of the good news. That's the gospel message that Jesus is sharing. But again, he's not beating him over the head with it. He's inviting him into this conversation, trying to get the guy to think a little bit on his own, and um, trying to share the hope of the good news with him. So any comments or thoughts there? All right, so I, I would encourage you to think about evangelism. You know, the next time somebody says, hey, we're doing an evangelism campaign, do you want to be a part of that? And before you just say, uh, no, I'm not going door knocking, maybe ask them some questions. Well, what do you mean by evangelism campaign? Are we sitting in a coffee shop and having conversations with people? Are we going to hang out with people that we already know and have conversation about the good news with them? You know, what, what does that look like? But, um, I would say evangelism um, is, the, the way you use that in ministry is to communicate the good news about Christ. And again, sometimes that's with words, sometimes it's just with how you live. Um, to constantly be having spiritually minded conversations. So evangelism is not something that you schedule on a calendar, like, oh, next Tuesday I'm doing evangelism. Like you just kind of live into this way of having spiritually focused conversations with people, helping people always look back to the good news of Christ. And then I think especially this third ingredient, craft conversations that allow for questions and dialogue. Open-ended types of conversation I think are more productive than saying, well, this is, this is what the Bible says. This is what, this is what you should do. So, good for that. Any other thoughts about evangelism? Well, I think that this is, like Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus is important because he calls him Israel's teacher. Mm -hmm. You're Israel's teacher. And it's kind of like he's saying, you, know, you obviously believe the things you've been taught, but you've never really questioned what those things mean. And if you had, you wouldn't be, you, well, you would be more open, you, Israel, if you had not just, okay, blah, 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 I believe it, blah, 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 that kind of stuff, then you would be more open to believe what is happening right in front of your face. But because what they had just been told was this way, they weren't able to recognize right. manifestation <clears throat> in front of them. And so they're constantly saying, well, yeah, but you, you've been told this, and how about that looks like this, not like what you thought. And, and that's applicable to all of us continually. Yeah, he's obviously an educated guy and knows, knows his Bible. He's a teacher to Israel. But I think what he's struggling with is seeing the regime change. Like, evangelism has to do with something, it's not static, there is something new, good news, you know, there's something new there that's being communicated. And I think that's where his sticking point was, and frankly, where I, I would have been too. You know, had I been a Jew in the first century and somebody comes and talks to me about Jesus, I would have been reluctant, for sure. For sure would have been reluctant. So. Okay, well, the third gift, kind of in this trifecta, is knowledge. So we have teaching and evangelism that both, um, you know, teaching can be a didactic exercise, but like Deanna was saying, I do think it's um, a spiritual, in the, in the context of the church, it's a spiritual exercise that, that imparts. 
knowledge. Um, and uh, obviously evangelism, you're communicating information, but you're just mostly trying to develop that relationship and share the good news. Then there's knowledge, which is the God-given ability to learn, analyze, and uncover insights from the Bible that are pertinent to the growth and well-being of the church. Okay. Now, Kent said, knowledge can puff up, and that's true. <clears throat> so let's watch one more video clip that kind of illustrates that. This is very strange. This is an, an actual TV show. This is like a trailer for a TV show on TLC. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the son was with them, and the son was with them, and the son was with them. They're intense. They're dedicated. They're devoted. Remember all that we studied? It's the same way I meant. Hundreds of American families doing something you never believe. This is where it gets, like, really real. This is when you see what nationals is. Let's pray before we start. The National Bible Bowl Championship 2015. In this astonishing world, children must memorize 1,100 verses of the Bible. I'm sure God cares about this game. I'm studying 12, 13 hours a day. Study, pet the cat. Study, pet the cat. There are teams to beat. God has given me an ability to play this game. We definitely have a higher chance of winning this year than any other team. We fear no one, except for Noah and Chris. We are the remaining national champions. There are teams to watch. Bring your faith in God or you'll mess up big time. I think we're going to be great. And it keeps on going a little bit like that. So, and I don't, I don't play this to like, Totally, I, I'm not trying to belittle, you know, this is a manifestation of their faith, and, and I think that's great. I, I, for me, I think that's, it's extremely strange. It's, it's weird to have a trophy associated with biblical knowledge. It's just the whole competition is a strange dynamic. But, um, you know, the root of it, I'm sure when somebody started Bible Bowl stuff, the root of it was, hey, let's teach kids, let's impart knowledge, biblical knowledge into our kids. And then from that, it kind of, maybe got a little bit out of control and got to the point where, you know, where it's a reality TV show now. So, strange. But the pursuit of biblical knowledge um, is valuable. So I thought we would do a quick little exercise. Um, this is um, all within the season of Advent, but these are fun trivia questions, okay? So, a great king, I'm gonna ask y'all for the answer. The question is, a great king is forewarned through his scribes about a threat to his throne. In an attempt to secure his kingdom and destroy this coming ruler, he has all the young boys in the vicinity murdered. Who is the king and the baby? Any, any answers? <coughs> Pharaoh and Moses. Oh. Yes, sir. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Christmas tree. Yeah. <laughs> good. Although it, it's interesting that the Christmas narrative uses that. So, okay, here's another one. You can redeem yourself here. A man named Joseph receives the revelation of God through dreams. <clears throat> As part of this, he goes down to Egypt, escaping those who would take his life. What book is this story found in? Genesis. Oh, okay. Genesis. Genesis chapter 37. So, you know, in the Christmas context, you think of Joseph and Mary. And, and certainly that's true for Joseph and Mary. Joseph receives a dream and realizes he needs to get his family out, so they go down to Egypt. But that also happens in Genesis chapter 37. All right, a couple more, I think. An angel appears to an older barren woman and announces that she will have a son. 
In disbelief, the father laughs and is then told the name that he must give the son. What is the son's name? Isaac and John. Isaac and Isaac and John. John Beth. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So um, this happens. This is the story of Abraham and Sarah who can't have a baby. Finally, Sarah gets pregnant, and so God says, uh, Abraham laughs, and so therefore uh, Isaac is named. Yes, yeah. No, maybe so. Maybe that's right. Sarah laughed. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and because of that, they name their son Yitzhak, which is laughter. Um, but that also happens in the in the Christmas narrative, the Advent narrative, with with John Beth, or uh, with um, Zechariah. Yes. Um, okay, last one. No, no, two more. Okay, in a time of great darkness for God's people, an angel appears and announces that a girl will have a son, that this boy will be set apart for God from birth, and that he will be the deliverer of God's people. Surrounding this announcement, angels of God were seen with great lights in the heavens. Who is this son to be born? This one's tricky. Any ideas on that? Nobody's going with the <laughs> first inclination. <laughs> the second to the last sentence through me. Yeah, I was trying to this announcement. Angels of God were seen with great lights in the heavens. Well, the answer is that this happens um, for Samson. Obviously, there's a parallel in the gospel story as well. Okay, that's, that's the last one I've got. Um, okay, so <clears throat> that illustration provides a couple of things. First of all, it, it shows a little bit as to how the Bible works in narrative flow and how narratives tend to be bo uh, borrowed. From, especially from Old Testament to New Testament, and then kind of uh, reframed into a, a current context. And I think that's an important work that we still have to do today. Still part of an important part of our hermeneutic is to um, read biblical texts, understand them in their original context, uh, be faithful to how they related to that original context, but then figure out how they relate to our context. That doesn't necessarily mean we tweak the stories to make them fit, but we have to extract truths from their original context and then be able to apply them to our lives. And that, I think, is useful knowledge, more so than being able to say 1,100 memory verses in an auctioneer voice, right? Okay. So um, there's, this is also tied somewhat to uh, wisdom, being able to to understand and apply scripture. So does anybody have, I didn't look this up, does anybody have Proverbs 1, verse 7? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right. So the way you know you have knowledge is not by how many Bible Bowl trophies you have, but by the, the fear and the love you have for the Lord. Of course, the fear there is talking about respect and honor. Um, Okay, um, so uh, real quick, the skill set of knowledge has to do with researching the Bible, understanding the truth. It's not just the research part. You have to actually understand. Uh, being able to organize information for the purposes of teaching and, and for personal use. And then um, that application piece, being able to come up with biblical solutions for life's challenges. And then a way to use this gift in the local church um, perhaps you could serve on a theology team or be a counselor to folks. Obviously, um, knowledge is required for teaching, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be the teacher. Um, you could gather knowledge, you know, and assemble a curriculum of sorts or just research data and then share that with others who have the gift of teaching. 
So those, those gifts can partner together. Uh, or you can just help others study uh, on a one-on-one -on -one situation or in a small group, those kinds of things. So that's how I see you would use knowledge in the local church. Any other comments? About knowledge. So. some great sermons that are engaging and funny and you get done and you're like, no, what? What was that about? Sure. So, um, yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah, so definitely teaching has an element of communication and, you know, teaching is kind of a unique skill set uh, and it's great when teaching and knowledge align but they, they don't always. Um, and then, so those two gifts definitely go to be together. Evangelism is maybe a little bit of an outlier. Um, I would liken evangelism more towards discipleship, you know, living in a certain way so that you can kind of bring others along, bring others into that story. Um, I would say it, evangelism is, is more like that than it is teaching. But certainly all three of these gifts have some overlap, but they also have some uniqueness too, so... Okay, next week we're going to look at some uh, ways to use these gifts, teaching evangelism and um, knowledge. And Deanna, remind me, do you know who we're bringing in? I think Rob's supposed to come. That's right. And Sandy Bledsoe. Okay. Okay, all right. So we'll have a teacher, Sandy Bledsoe, who can talk about teaching. And then Rob uh, Touchstone is going to come and talk about the well. Uh, of course, Rob is also a teacher at Lipscomb, but has also started the Well Coffee Shop, which the whole mission, not only is the mission to be able to use the profits for drilling clean water wells across the world, but it's also supposed to be a context where evangelistic types of conversations, teaching conversations can happen in that, in that space as well. So, hope you'll be here next week for those conversations. All right. Thank you. Thank you.